I invite you then to turn your Bibles to John's Gospel. And um, <clears throat> John's Gospel in particular, we are going to be focusing in on verses 14 through 18. This is the prologue. This is the beginning of the Gospel of John. And um, unlike other Gospels, John decided to put a beginning to kind of give us a snapshot of what was yet to come. So even the themes that we're going to be talking about this morning and the themes that we have talked about already are themes that are going to be picked up on in the book um, and in the gospel. So we may not have to dial down super, super deep on all the different issues because we're eventually going to get there and see those things on display. Um, and at the same time, it may be good for us to come back to this area and to spend some time maybe around Christmas to talk about, you know, the passage we're going to look at today and, and dial down deeper to see what God has to say about God coming in the flesh uh, because that's what Christmas is about. And So uh, just understand that if there's, a, if there's a section or an area that, that maybe we're not spending lots of time on, it's because it is going to be fleshed out further as we go through this book. And that's one of the advantages of studying through a book and realizing the purpose of what's going on here, the introduction, the preparation, the highlighting here so that when you get there, you'll have a better understanding of what is going on. Now, if you remember, as we've been studying through this prologue, and actually through, through the book, um, we began by looking at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I want to invite you to go back there again, just to be an anchor once more as to the reason why John is writing this book. He has a definite purpose in mind. And his purpose is a little different than maybe Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's. He spells it out clearly here, and uh, he goes at it in his own, um, his own way, of course, which is also breathed out by God. And there it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Meaning, John didn't include everything. There are other things he could have pulled from, but he didn't include everything. But these, the ones that are in this book, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if you remember, the three words that we looked at were evidence, belief, and faith. Okay? Um, sorry, evidence, belief, and then life. And we could say belief and faith really are two words that we use interchangeably there. So evidence, belief, and then life. So the question we have now uh, as we come into the prologue is who is Jesus? And we saw already in the first number of verses that Jesus is what? How's he described? He's the Word. He's the Word. And that Word was on display. That Word was in the beginning with God. That Word was with God. And that Word was God. So we find this, this connection to the Godhead, the fact that he is intimately in relationship with the Godhead, the fact that he is eternal, the fact that he is actually himself God. Right? And not only that, as we moved along, we saw that the fact that this, this word was coming into this world was going to be um, prefaced or, uh, well, Jesus, Jesus was going to come, but there was going to be a person, a witness that was going to come before him by the name of John the Baptist. And he came to prepare the way. And he prepared the way by testifying that Jesus was coming and that when Jesus came on the scene, that he, in fact, was very God. Okay? So we have the word being kind of communicated at the initial part here. Then we had the witness that was last week. And today we're going to focus in on what I've called the way. 
the way. And uh, let's just one more time read through um, these few verses beginning at verse 14, and I'm sure you recognize how significant this text is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And what I'm saying today here, as I've studied this passage, I see here three three avenues, so to speak. Three avenues of progression uh, regarding God's divine and unfolding plan of redemption, of the gospel, of salvation, of his purposes. Three unfolding avenues. And I'll just give them to you quickly. There's the, the progression of heaven to earth. The progression of heaven to earth. And you see this in the incarnation. Okay? God in heaven, God on the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. You see this progression from the law to the gospel or to grace and truth. But there's something more about when Jesus comes that, that is progressing here. And then there's, of course, the progression from the unseen to the seen, which would be verse 18, we find that. Now, see, these are really, these are really interesting progressions, but they, they flow out of what God was desiring to do in coming to this earth and in being uh, in, in, incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a caution here. When I say the word progression, you might be thinking that the thing that, that was left to be progressed from was inferior to what has now come. And that is not the case. It's not that God in heaven was less God until he was on earth. And it's not that the law was somehow inferior to the gospel. And it's not that the fact that God was unseen is now superior to the fact that, or is now superior because he is seen. No, this is just part of God's unfolding plan. Now, so we're, we're used to seeing TV commercials that says, you know, Buy Tide. And you've been buying Tide all your life. And there's probably been about 15 different progressions of the soap Tide that you have used in your life. And every time you look at that commercial, you're thinking, well, what's wrong with what I just got? If you're saying this is new and improved, are you saying that what I had before was not good enough? It's just a progression. So we're thinking that what was progressed from is less than or worse than what is now being on display or now being progress to. You with me there? We want to be careful that we're not saying the same thing about what's taking place with God. There is an unfolding, I'll use this word, understand it, evolution of the gospel through the pages of God's word. And there's an, uh, there's an unfolding evolution of God's plan as it comes and as it, as it progresses. And certainly he established it with Abraham and then Moses and so on and so forth. And then Jesus comes and there's a new step, there's a new phase. That's all I'm saying here, and I think this is what what John ultimately is getting to here, this word that dwelt in heaven, that was eternal, that was with God, that was God, that was um, prepared for by um, John the Baptist, is now coming in the flesh. And there's three different avenues here that that I'm seeing. So the progress here is regarding the incarnation, 
regarding the gospel and regarding what I'm calling intimacy with God. So let's look at the first one, the avenue of incarnation, the avenue of incarnation. If nothing else, you love the picture, right? Um, through the years, there have been many attempts to, um, to understand the nature of Jesus. What is he like? How is it that God and flesh and a body can cohabit? And there have been you know, attempts to try and describe that. Some have thought that, well, divinity um, entered into a body, but not necessarily taking on any humanity, just using the body as a shell. Some thought that, uh, that Jesus was born just like any other child, but uh, a divine spirit came upon him at his baptism and left right prior to his crucifixion. All right? So there's, this, there's been this challenge as to who is Jesus as far as is he God, is he man, is he God-man, is he 50-50, is he bits and pieces, or how does that all work? And so John is really seeking to help us understand what that is. Um, and understand he is speaking into a particular context. Notice in uh, chapter, um, in chapter 1 and verse 14 again, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here, I first of all want you to see the word, and the word now is going to be described in three ways. Um, it's the word incarnate which means he took on flesh. Right? That's the idea. He, he became flesh. Now, the idea of the word became here is not that he was created. All right? He became flesh. He was um, this, this, this Christ, this eternal logos, who is God, who came to earth as a man. He didn't just appear to be a man. Um, that's what I was telling you earlier. The docetists believe that, that that Jesus simply took on this divine spirit at baptism and then um, left at crucifixion. Um, clearly here what John is saying is that he took on flesh. He took on a real body. He took on, uh, I mean, he was, he was a real boy when he was born. He was a real son as he was growing up. And ultimately, he was a man. You could physically touch him. Uh, and he went through all the different things that we would go through growing up. He wasn't somehow a superhuman, superman, you know, kryptonite-less kind of an individual that somehow w w was around. He said, oh, you know, superhuman. No, he, he, he had all the, the struggles and frailties that we would have, except for one thing. He wouldn't sin. But every, every capacity, and get this, every capacity, every mechanism necessary for him to truly be tempted was present. Okay? So it wasn't, like, it wasn't like he didn't understand temptation. It wasn't like he didn't understand what it meant to thirst and want to maybe give something up to satisfy that thirst. He understood that. He, he had those same things. Just like you and I get to a place of temptation, get to a place where we're going to have to decide whether we sin or whether we don't. There, there's he went that far, but he, he could not and he would not sin. But he definitely took on himself um, flesh. Now notice um, in the, the book of 1 John, again, John wrote 1 John, and you'll see a little bit of the context of what's going on here. Um, John had to deal with this subject throughout his letters. 
And I'm just going to pull out one portion of Scripture here. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and just listen. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? In the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, going back to what I was saying about these docetists, these people that believe that this, this, this phantom or the spirit came upon Jesus, is that they were still struggling with the Greek idea of the word. Remember, the Greek idea of the word was that this, this logos, which means word, was so far removed from, from creation that anything that was physical was considered to be evil or bad. Only that which is spiritual could be considered to be good. So they're wrestling with how can God take on flesh, because if he did that, it would mean he would lose his godness. But what John is saying here is, listen, that's exactly what God did. You're taking your ideology and forcing that into the story when Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That's how he came. And so your idea of you know, spirit being good and matter being evil is really a false idea. And so throughout this, this is why he's saying, if a spirit comes to you and doesn't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, don't listen to him. You must confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he truly is God. D.A. Carson says it well. He says that Jesus donned our humanity, save only our sin. Very simple, easily put. And I think it's simple enough to say this, that, that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, um, and, and it's, it's those two things coming together that makes him who he is. He is the God-man. There's no 50-50 going on here. There's no smaller percentages. 100% God, 100% man. But to reinforce that, to give us further clarity, John says that he dwelt among us, right? So the word there not only was incarnate, but he, was, he also tabernacled. There's an allusion here to the Old Testament. If you remember the tabernacle, um, by the way, the word dwelt among us is the word for tent, and the idea there is the tent that was used in the tabernacle. Okay? So there's an allusion here to the Old Testament where God wanted to dwell with his people. And so what they did is they built a tabernacle according to his instructions. And in that tabernacle, many things took place, but it was the place where God dwelt among his people. So there was a sense in which God, God was among his people in the Old Testament in the tabernacle that is being said here about who um, Jesus is himself. Okay? The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt. And certainly when Jesus was on the earth, he was like that in the sense that he dwelt with the people. All right? The tabernacle was also the place where sacrifices were made. And of course, Jesus himself was the ultimate sacrifice. Okay? The tabernacle was the place where worship was offered to God. And certainly, all worship ultimately has to go through Jesus Christ to the Father. So he is himself the fulfillment as well as the, the um, satisfaction of what that 
that Old Testament tabernacle is. He himself is that tabernacle. And that's why John is saying, listen, not only did he come in the flesh, but he dwelt among us. Now, there's some significance about dwelling among us. I mean, just look at the picture up there. Imagine all of us were living in tents like this. First of all, it probably we would all be miserable, I'm sure, okay? A few of us wouldn't be. But we're all living in the same condition. But Jesus lives in one of those tents. All right, he, he gets up just like we get up in the morning. He, he, he has breakfast just like we have breakfast. He interacts with people. It's not just that God, you know, God came in the flesh and he was kind of kept secret, you know, off in some land somewhere that we didn't interact with him. No, the point is that he dwelt with us. He rubbed shoulders with mankind. He knew what it was, what it was like to, to see suffering, to, to experience um, hardship, uh, to, to see people uh, mourning and, 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 and struggling with grief and, 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 and health and all sorts of different things. He was around that. He wasn't aloof to that. He dwelt among us. And that's why the next statement here, and we have seen his glory, makes sense. Not only was he incarnated, not only did he dwell with us, but he dwelt with us to the point that we could see him on display. And John here is specifically talking, I think, about, um, about the fact that, uh, that he was privileged with a couple of other disciples to be at what's called the transfiguration. The transfiguration was that time when Jesus met with the Father but also took on a glorified body, right? And that he was able to see Jesus in a glorified way. So certainly there's, there's some of that dynamic coming through here when we see it being said, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But I think this also reflects or refers to the glory that, that simply emanates from who Jesus is. Now just think about this. If Jesus was on the earth, we would certainly see him acting and behaving in a way that would be Christ-like, right? It's kind of a dumb statement, right? He is Christ, so whatever he does is Christ-like. But just think about that. We think of that kind of off in the abstract. But if you saw Jesus and he was here this morning and he was getting a donut, he would get the perfect donut. Right? He wouldn't bump you out of the way. He would be gracious enough to hand you whatever you wanted. I'm saying everything that we know is good and right and pure and just would be not only in him, but would be in him on display by his acts, by his behavior. And John was with him for three years watching and observing not only him in ministry, but him in the quiet times, in the personal times, in the times with his disciples. Now, we're given a glimpse of those things, but John was there. And John was there sometimes when he wasn't too happy. And yet his unhappiness, you might well say his anger, was just and right and pure, Okay. So you've got to think of Jesus in those terms, that while he was here, his glory was on display. And not only that, John saw him. Now, there's something important that we need to see, and that is a little word. If you have a different translation, it might say here, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten. Okay? Um, and that's the, the word 
monogenes, or monogenus, as it would be here in this, this translation. Um, and it's the word that can be translated begotten, but the idea and the, the, is, is not the, the, that Jesus was created as we would think of begotten. It means that he is unique. He is the only son. There's something special about him. Now, we are all called sons of God. We're God's children. We're called sons. You know, if you want to make that, you know, gender specific, we're daughters of God too, okay? You all fit into that, right? Um, but what makes Jesus a different son of God? It's because he is only. He is unique, okay? So understand that difference there. If you have a translation that says only begotten, um, that might confuse you. And this is one of the passages that Jehovah's Witnesses will come to and say, ah, see, only begotten. See, he was, he, he was created. He began. That means he began. You need to study that out to understand what that word means. Because if you get that wrong, you have a distorted view of who Jesus is. So he certainly is unique. He is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and certainly, what is, what is that grace? That grace would be his attributes on display. And the truth would be anything that came out of his mouth would be what? would be right. Okay? Now, this is a summary of what we're yet to experience. The whole gospel is going to be sh putting Jesus on display, right? Showing his attributes. It's going to be showing the, the, the beauty of his words and how pure and how true they are. So this is preparation for us as we look into this particular gospel. And then we have um, what I've called here just the witness um, just going to verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out. And these, this is in a tense that says, John continually bore witness. John continually cried out. This was constant. This was ongoing. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, you think that John was on the scene first. Well, he was on the scene first in one sense, but John knew that he was there to prepare a way for someone who would come before him because he always was, right? Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the word was and all God's, the word's wasiness because he was always back eternal? John recognized that Jesus is eternal and that he was simply humble and being used by God to prepare him for the ministry that he had to do. So, the avenue of incarnation, this change, this progression, God in heaven, God now on the earth, and, and, and him taking on the form of man completely, totally, except for that one thing, and that would be um, his sin. Then there's the avenue of the gospel, the avenue of the gospel. Notice what it says in verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Let's just stop there. Now, this is not on your overhead. This is a little bit different. But this is what is often referred to as common grace. Common grace is favor, is goodness that finds its source in Christ that is given out to everyone. All right? We could have a a packed house here where half the people were unbelievers. Maybe we had some Muslims, Buddhists, whatever, and we had Christians. And everyone would be the recipient of God's common grace. Everyone probably has eaten a good meal. 
have tasted some wonderful things. Have you ever tasted some wonderful things? Have you ever had some great experiences in life, maybe visited some really beautiful places or just had a, a great time of retreat or, or maybe you've experienced some kind of a, an activity that is just in, an incredible amount of fun? We all experience the, the warmth of sunshine, the pleasure of being with family and friends. There's so many other things. This is all common grace things. Most people don't realize that the source of all that is God himself, that he is the reason why they're able to have those kinds of things. They just go on with their life saying, oh, it was really cool. We had a great day. And they don't attribute it to God at all. You know, when, when it rains, it doesn't, you know, God doesn't come with the cloud and say, oh, look, there's a member of Gateway, pour out, you know, and then move over. And right, it doesn't work that way. God reigns on those who are his and those who are shaking their fist at him. It's common grace. So certainly there is that going on here. It says, for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And think of that expression, grace upon grace, as like waves coming into the shore. Just wave after wave after wave of God's grace just coming over and over again. But there is also a, a dynamic here that I would call gospel grace that is unique to the believers. It's called gospel grace. Again, it's not on the screen here, but it would be unique to believers. There is a sense in which we who know Christ as our Lord and Savior are the recipients of God's favor in a unique way. When in our spiritual lives we are thirsty, we can go to the Lord Jesus Christ and we can drink. When we need counsel, we can lean on him, and he will give us direction and wisdom. An unbeliever will open up the word of God, and they'll find a verse, but they will not have any comprehension of it because they are not blessed with the favor of grace of illumination that comes by virtue of the Holy Spirit. We have truly been blessed with God's grace that comes as a result of the gospel. So those times when you're discouraged and you need to lean on his shoulder for comfort, you can do that. Why? Because you're a child of God. The only way an unbeliever can do that is if they exercise faith in the gospel. That's the first step. That's the only place. Through that, they can then benefit from gospel grace. So again, our lives are full of times when we are the recipients of wave after wave after wave of grace. One of those is the, the word peace. You know, yesterday I did a funeral. And by the way, I just want to say to you, for those of you that reached out to the Jose family, um, it meant so much to Kim and her family how Gateway has kind of just responded to her. She wanted to make sure that I mentioned that to you. And so I want you to hear that. And, and the result of that is simply grace working through a church to someone who is struggling because they've lost a loved one but they're able to go through that trial with a peace that we're told in Scripture passes all understanding, right? Well, what is that? That's grace. It's only because of God's goodness that I can experience that kind of peace. So we are the recipients of that, that grace upon grace upon grace. But then there's also this progressing grace. Um, in verse 17 and following, and I want you to notice this. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, let me ask you this. Was the law bad? 
When you think of the law, do you usually think of grace? Is that what you usually think of? You don't usually think of grace, do you? You usually think of high standards, the inability to reach those standards, failure, um, feeling really, really bad, and having to cry out to God for help, which ultimately is the purpose of the law, isn't it? To show us our inability to measure up to God's standard and to be holy. Okay? Now, that being true, um, the law in and of itself does not necessarily equal grace, but the law is a tool by which grace is applied. Because in the Old Testament in particular, if you think about the law, the people had the law, they, they tried their, their best to live by the law. When they failed, what would they do? God instituted the sacrificial system as a means by which their sins could be atoned for. And so those sacrifices were a means of grace for those people, right? Okay. And ultimately we see that being satisfied in Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice once for all. All those sacrifices ultimately were pointing to him. So let's look at a couple of verses of scripture here and get the connection between uh, the law, and then ultimately that not, not being replaced by grace and truth, but being, I want to say, complemented or progressed here with grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Turn there, if you would, please. Matthew 5 and verse 17. This is, this is really important in our understanding of the law, Okay. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a statement of progression, right? See? He's not saying, aha, okay, new order, wipe away the law. And, and, and when people have this mindset that the Old Testament's all law, the New Testament's all grace, they have a misunderstanding of the flow of the gospel. Say, well, why is that? Well, look now at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And we'll read verse 7, and then also a little bit of verse 12. So we're not going to read all of verse 7. We'll just get the idea, and then verse 12. Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Are we going to say that the law now is sin? It's bad, it's evil, it's wicked? By no means. Jump down to verse 12. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, I'm just giving you a snippet here. The law is a gift from God to us. And in a culture that doesn't want to come face to face with its own sin, the law itself can be seen by them as sinful, as a horrible thing. It certainly is heavy on us when it exposes us for who we are. But God never intended for the law itself to stand alone and that be it. The law is a tool that God uses to accomplish his purposes. Now, go to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. We'll kind of tie this together. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. Paul speaking here. So then... The law was our guardian, some texts would say tutor, 
until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law then was our guardian. It was our tutor until Christ came. So what do we have now that John is saying? Christ is come. (laughs) All right? All right, there was the law that was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Christ. He's speaking here about the same thing that Paul is speaking about. The law was there. It was there to help us. It was there to guide us. But ultimately, Jesus Christ has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So there's progression in Christ. Jesus has come. The law is there to help us along the way and actually to help us understand the significance of what Jesus Christ has come to do. Because if you just wipe the law out of the way, there's really a lack of understanding why he even went to the cross. Okay. Now this is, this is important, and this is part of the progression that we're going to see as we go through the gospel. That, that Jesus himself is, is now on display. His grace is on display. His truth is on display. And that in and of itself, is a means by which we can, uh, we can truly comprehend the gospel that God ultimately has laid out for mankind. There's the avenue of the gospel. There's also the avenue of what I'm calling intimacy. You might want to put in here intimacy with God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, let me ask you a question. Think Old Testament here. Who in the Old Testament saw God? This is not a trick question. Who saw God? Hands up. I can't hear a bunch of junior hires now. You've got to raise your hand. And <laughs> no. Yes, sir. Moses saw God. When did he see God? Okay. All right. Where else? Moses had another encounter. Right, getting the Ten Commandments, certainly. What was that? Same thing? There's a passage that talks about where he went up into the mountain and, and he, he saw his hinder parts. Remember that? The afterglow of God. It's all part of the same section of Scripture, Exodus 33, 34. Can you think of anyone else? Huh? Was that with Abraham? Yeah, he walked through the thingamajig. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What else? Would Jacob wrestle with God? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay, ultimately that would be true, but we're still in the Old Testament. Yes. Yeah. Sure. So when we come to a passage like this and it says no one has ever seen God, we are kind of scratching our head a little bit. That's my point here. Okay? But how did these people see God? They, they saw God either in a theophany. I take Moses and the burning bush. Did he actually see God? He saw something that was a veiled representation of him, right? When Moses saw the afterglow of God, that was the whole point. He couldn't see God directly, he can only see his hinder parts. That doesn't mean his tail end. That means, that means the, the end result 
of once he goes through, there's still this emanating presence that is there. Okay? All right. Well, he wrestled with, with Jacob. Yeah? There's kind of an anthropomorphism there. Something going on there that would be like God, but it actually isn't God himself. Okay? Um, so so we've we, we got to kind of wrestle a little bit through some of those things. I mean, Isaiah also, you know, when he had this vision, he saw God, and what did he say? Woe is me. And why did he say that? Because they understood that no man can see God. And yet God, in his own wisdom, gifted certain people with glimpses of him that were clouded, that were somehow, um, at least ways in which man could comprehend that it was God and to reveal a little bit about who he is. Okay? So, um, this, this idea of no one has ever seen God is, is certainly true, um, but maybe there's a clarification here. No one has ever seen God's essential nature. It's really, I think, what's being talked about here. Okay? Um, and we'll flesh that out here in just a minute. All right, go to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Yes. Yes, most of those would be considered a theophany, yes, of, of one form or another, or an anthropomorphism, which would be a, a kind of a human... Um, demonstration or God, God kind of taking on a human attribute so that he could be understood. Okay? Um, Colossians 1.15. Now this is where we start tying some things together. And again, we, we're kind of scratching the surface here, but uh, it's important to see this. Here's talking about Jesus. Paul's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the, what? Invisible God. So there is an invisible God, a God that cannot be seen or is not seen, but Jesus himself in coming to this earth and being incarnated and dwelling among us and displaying his glory and his truth is an image of God, an image of this invisible Father. Okay? You with me there so far? Now go back to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John in chapter 14. And I, we'll, we'll pick up at verse 1. Um, just, you know, I was, this is actually the passage I spoke on yesterday at the funeral, but as you read on in this passage, you see how it just all connects. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, understand that. And then he continues on. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have, what? Seen him. Continue on. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay? So what's going on here? Jesus is saying, there is a, or John is saying, that there is a movement here, a progression from the unseen to the seen. Okay? From this God who, is, who has been on display in many different ways. You know, and the picture up there is a picture of, of, of his, his display in creation. You look around and you're, you're directed that behind that creation, there must be a creator. And so there is this veiled understanding of who God is. We have him revealed in his Old Testament word also in many ways. But it's not until Jesus comes that we have God in the flesh on display for us, and in looking at Jesus, we, when we look at him, see the Father, at least the people who were there with Jesus. So there's this progression going on. So Jesus, then, is this unique son. Again, no one has ever seen God, the only, the unique God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's really a bookend statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Our word was with God, and where was God? And now we have no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him, the Father, known. And what's significant then about that expression, made him known, is the Greek word exegesis. Okay? To exegete means to, it's, it's a word used to, in Bible study, to talk about pulling out what is there in the text, studying, discovering, but letting the text say what it says. How do we know the Father? Jesus exegetes him for us. He makes him known. You want to know God? Study what Jesus has to say about who God is. Study what he does. Study what he says. Study the implications of how he reveals God to mankind. So Jesus obviously then is not just the incarnate Son of God. He is also the visible image of the Father while he is here on this earth. That's the idea there. Now, let's bring this to a close. <clears throat> a lot of this has been heady, and I apologize for that. And somewhat all over the place, but um, let's just kind of bring this down to our own purposes here. Notice Notice our goals here, to know and to apply and to proclaim. It is important that each of us grasp a proper doctrinal theological understanding of who Jesus is. And we're in a passage here, these 18 verses that, that really do bring out for us some key aspects of the nature of who Christ is. He is God. He is man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. He isn't a phantom. He wasn't a phantom. He came on this earth. He lived. He breathed. He ate. He hungered. He thirsted. You know, he, he suffered. He was tempted. But ultimately, he went to a cross. And there on that cross, he died for our sins. That's just a real quick summary of the fact that we need to know the truth of the gospel. We need to know the nature of Christ. And I would just encourage you, take some time this week to Pick up Grudem Systematic or some other good systematic. Be careful just floating on the internet to find some things out. But be
begin to grasp an understanding of who Jesus is. It's not enough, and hear me, it's not enough for us just to say, well, yeah, I know Jesus is God, boom. You need to be able to defend the faith for your own soul as well as for the opportunity of applying the truth of Jesus to your life and proclaiming who he is. Secondly, on the area of application here, you know what? When you begin to understand that Jesus is not aloof, but he is with us and he understands us, then his instructions to us make that much more sense. Because he understands the difficulties that we face. He understands the trials that we go through. And his guidance and his words are not too burdensome. And also the things that he says for us to, to, to listen to that may be hard, he's saying with an understanding of our constitution, of our makeup. Well, I can't do that. Well, wait a second. If he's telling me to do that, which probably means that I can't, I just maybe don't want to or I have fear. Okay, those things may be true. But if he says I can, then guess what? I can. And we've got to be careful that we're willing to listen to what he says because he truly understands who we are as far as our makeup is concerned. Okay? He is on display. And I would just, uh, that is not on display anymore, but he is certainly. Um, and then the, the last part here is this, um, is the proclamation side of things. Now, guys, I, I, know, I know we love God's word. I know we love the fellowship. I know we, we love talking about the things of God. But we must take those truths and those understandings of who Jesus is and his unfolding gospel and open our mouths to those who do not know him. And the best way to do that is to have a grasp of who Jesus really is. I mean, how many times have you had someone come knocking at your door? And you probably know some of the answers. And more than likely, the person coming and knocking at your door is not going to be the person you're going to be able to, you know, share the gospel with, and, and, and they'll get converted because they're coming on their own terms, right? Although, a little side note here, always pick on the novice. We've talked about this before, right? Always pick on, there's always a leader and there's always a novice. Look at the novice straight in the face, right in the eyes, and just tell them the gospel. Say, you know what, I know that you believe what you believe, but this is what the scripture says, and tonight when you lay your head on that pillow, I want you to remember my face, and I want you to remember the truth. Now, that might be the only gospel they ever get because it's all clouded with their stuff. But if we can't defend the faith, if we can't argue the truth of the gospel in a pagan world, then who's going to do it? It's important that we are diligent in our, in our understanding of the gospel, in our understanding of who God is, in our understanding of who Jesus is because he's given us the responsibility to proclaim him. So as we go through this gospel, one of my goals as pastor is that you will get to know Jesus. And in getting to know Jesus, you will then not only apply him to your life, but you'll also turn around and be able to speak into the lives of other people because we're going to see all sorts of people in this gospel. And God will use that to strengthen us, to mold us, to shape us. We have been blessed to see you know, the, the incarnation. We've been blessed to see this transition into the gospel from, from the law. And we've been blessed to see that, that God, although unseen, is now seen in Jesus. And we can benefit from all of those things uh, if we take time to study them, to, to grasp them, to dig deeper 
and to, to make sure those are, are, are areas that we are just shoring up in our walk with him. Lord, I just ask that you'd help us today uh, to, to grow in our understanding of you. Lord, I feel very inadequate, Lord, for the task today. And yet, Lord, I realize that you work in spite of man's weakness. I would ask, Lord, that you would simply use your word and your Holy Spirit to, to, to minister that word into the hearts of your people here. Lord, may, may Gateway Bible Church be a church that loves you as you are, not as we want you to be. That means, Lord, we're going to take the hard stuff and we're going to take the good stuff. We're going to desire to live for your glory based on what you say your glory is. Help us, Lord, to be humble. But, Lord, help us to do that with joy, knowing that that is exactly what you called us to be as a church. So, Lord, help us to, to soak up all we can of you, to, to learn to apply it to our lives personally, but, Lord, also then to turn around to proclaim it to those who do not have a hope in this world who are blessed by your grace nonetheless, but do not have an understanding of your gospel grace. Lord, we, we ask for strength and direction and wisdom in that regard, in your precious holy name. Amen.